worship is, is, for most Christians across this community, probably across this country, is a, 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 a program, right? Like it starts at a certain time and it flows in a certain way and then certain expectations are met and then we all go home, right? That's what Sunday worship is most of the time in most places. And, and you know, I've been fighting against that since I was a kid. You know, I was, I was raised in the Catholic Church and I was an altar boy. And anybody else who's raised in the Catholic Church will appreciate this. I knew how to do the job, but I like to mess with it. <laughs> I, I messed with it. That's all I'm going to say. Some priests thought it was great, and some priests thought if I didn't straighten up, they were going to get unpriestly with me real fast. And, um, but I, I just, I was thinking just now, you know, this is a family gathering, right? How many of you on Sunday afternoons will have a family gathering? Maybe I'll go to your mom and dad's house and all the grandkids and the, maybe grand, grand, great grandkids. I can't even say it, but I know what I mean. And maybe, maybe they'd be wandering around in the yard playing together. Maybe they'll organize a game or something. And, and some of you will sit around and talk over here and some of you sit around and talk over here and there'll be lots of snacking, of course. And eventually everybody will leave and go home and they feel more complete because they spent time with the family. But it wasn't a program, it wasn't a show, it wasn't kept within a strict time limit, it was a family gathering. And I gotta be honest with you, I've never wanted that more for this church than I do right now. That this is our family gathering. We are the body of Christ, we're the family of God, and we've come to be together for a little while on Sunday morning each week to worship God because we just can't help it, but we also, smile and embrace one another because we can't help it. And we celebrate the events and the lives of the family because we can't help it. It's just a natural expression of family. So may that be what we are. And let that be part of this process that I've tried to engage us in since the first of the year, where we're defining who we are and what matters most, because we've been through a lot, family. Like most families, we've been through a lot. You know, your families have been through a lot. Some of you have been through storms, and some of you have been through sickness and diagnoses and illness, and some of you have been through upheaval in your relationships and job changes, and your lives have been full of disruption and, and, and wild and crazy times that you'd rather not deal with or you would rather not were, you'd rather they weren't so stressful. You know, this is what it means to be a family doing life together and this church has been the same way we've just been through a lot we've been through a lot and it's been like storms and sicknesses it's been like the passages that are natural to life generational changes we've just been through all of that haven't we and here we are Shiloh Church the family and our Sundays have been devoted, among other things, to defining who we are. And that's why we're looking to the apostolic example now. 
Because we chose intentionally to align with the apostles and to disaffiliate ourselves from any disconnection from the traditional Christian apostolic values. And so we're studying those together. We're a family being clear about who we are. Do you ever go to family gatherings and people talk about the ones who have passed and they're no longer present, but you, you still keep the stories alive? You know, I could tell you a lot about my family. I won't right now, but I mean, I could tell you about my uncle who, who flew a Piper Cub when he was in his teens and used to take off and land from the backyard, you know. I could tell you about my, my, uh, my dad's brother, Harold, who was a maniac and would tell us kids to be careful on our mini bikes and motorcycles, and then he'd fly by standing on the seat of his doing some sort of weird gesture, you know, and my dad shaking his head and being like, he's such an idiot. And so I could tell you that, but these people, they're part of our story. And so now what we're really doing is we're reviewing the people who are part of our story, but they go back a little further. And we call them the apostles. And the reason they're so important to us is because the apostles are the ones who helped us decide what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And everyone agreed that no one knew better than them except Jesus, and he left them in charge. So let's follow their example. So today we're going to get to know one of the apostles, and we'll spend time each week getting to know more of the apostles. But this week I want to introduce you to Philip. Now, we're going to read this passage from John 1, starting in verse 43, and then talk about him a little bit. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him before Philip called you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Philip, the apostle, not necessarily the same Philip we refer to as Philip the evangelist. So there are two Phils running around right after the ascension of Jesus 
and they're both great guys and they're both engaged in evangelism and they're both engaged in service and they're both humble, committed to God and not unlikely to have witnessed miracles. And yet, historically, we seem to have a conundrum because they probably weren't the same person but at this point in our discussion, doesn't really matter. We're going to focus on Philip the Apostle, who was busy engaging in evangelism. You know how I know? We just read it. He, he found the one they were looking for, the, the, the Messiah that they were looking for. And the first thing he did was start telling his friends. And he went to his friend Nathaniel. Philip has a Greco-Roman name. That means that, that however it was he was raised, he was raised in the sort of Hellenist tradition. That is to say, he was Jewish through and through and obviously was looking for the Messiah. But he was raised in a community where they spoke a lot of Greek and Hebrew, and he was fluent in both, and he was familiar with and and comfortable with both forms of communication and both kinds of society. I guess the way to explain that would be around here you probably have encountered some of our Amish neighbors and you know that they are not that different from you. They've just chosen a different lifestyle and they have a sort of secret code language of their own but they also are more than conversant with you and me about anything. And so you could say that's kind of what Philip was like, kind of. The point is, is that he was an ideal evangelist because he was comfortable and fluent in the language and the culture of his society, but he was Jewish through and through and committed to his Old Testament, which we would call it, and his belief in the coming of the Messiah. And when he met the Messiah, he knew. So one of the first things you can learn from this apostle is, is know what you're looking for, if anything at all. Now, that means that if you aren't looking, then you're probably not going to find anything. You might stumble across it, but what if you don't know what you stumbled across? You ever found anything like that? You're walking around your house or some public place and you see something shiny on the ground, you pick it up and you go, what is that? Anybody know what that is? And, and it looks expensive or it looks important because it's cut a certain way or whatever. So that, that looks like it's a part of something. Can anybody relate to this or am I just looking like a knucklehead up here, right? <laughs> You know, and, and, and so, you, you know, you don't know what you found, but you figure it's important. Now, that's how many of us stumble into being Christian disciples. You know, we, we don't know what we found, but it seems important. And then maybe, maybe a guide, maybe a discipleship coach. I know one who's taking appointments right now. Says to you, you know what you found? I'll tell you, and here's how you can use it to enhance your life, to enrich your relationship with your creator, to take your life from being about a few short years of vitality and turn it into something that is eternal. So that's kind of what Phil was like. That's what Philip was doing. 
And he comes to his friend Nathaniel and, and he says, Nathaniel, look what I found. Now he knows what he found, but Nathaniel goes, that can't be of any value. It came from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And, and then Philip says, look again, look again. And then when Nathaniel does, it starts to dawn on him that Philip has found the Messiah. So it can work that way, but, but the truth that you all have to engage in, the truth I have to engage in in order to really become a disciple of Jesus Christ is, is am I looking for a Messiah? What do I need one of those for anyway? You know, there's many, many people go to church all their lives and they don't know why. Can we be honest with each other about that? They go to church because it's a, a social construct that's become an important part of their lives and, and, and it has certain value because it ties certain things together in their lives. But, but why doesn't it make any difference? Why? See, we're going to find out in a few minutes that Philip was a guy who was utterly and completely convinced that he'd found the Messiah, and his conviction led him to do things that led to other people's conviction. And you and I both know that you can't convince anybody to make a radical change in their life if it hasn't also happened in your life. You know that. You know that's true. And so if we're going to be serious about growing this church the old-fashioned way through evangelism, which is sharing the good news, then the only way you're going to share good news that invites other people to want what you are talking about is when it's clearly made a difference in your life. That's just how it works. Nobody's going to buy what you're selling if you don't really believe in it either. You know, in my life before ministry, I sold truck things for a living. And I worked for this one dealership once upon a time that was well known for its, quote, Cadillac of trucks. It was a brand that was considered the high end, you know, man, if you wanted the finest truck on the road for, you know, the, the wooden inlay on the dash and all the fancy stuff that made for a class ride, that's what you wrote. But then I went to work years after that for Mack. And you know what? I'm a Mack truck guy today. <laughs> I still am. I still think there's nothing better out there on the road than a Mack truck. That's how sold I was. That's how convinced I was. I went to the factory and I saw how they made those things. I talked to the engineers. I learned how to sell those trucks because that was the secret, was believing in the product so completely. And you know what, it's just a truck. And there's plenty of them out there that do just fine and they don't have a bulldog on the hood. But, you know, I knew because I was convinced that that was just a better one and that you were getting more value out of it. And you know what? I was fairly successful and I have every belief that part of the reason I was so successful is that was I was thoroughly trained and I was convinced Well, I don't sell trucks anymore. 
But I guess you notice I get up here every week and give you a pitch. You know, we used to call it in the truck business the walk around. Right, George? You do the walk around. You walk around the vehicle and you point out all the features and benefits. And here's the thing just to keep in mind. Features don't mean a thing unless they have benefit. Right? Now, I know you. some of you are thinking, where is he going? Well, Philip was an evangelist. And the first thing he says to his friend Nathaniel is, we have found the one that Moses was looking for. We found the one the prophets told us about. The features and the benefits were sort of assumed in a way because they already knew what they were looking for. So that brings me back to that point. Do you know what you're looking for? See, if you're not in the market for something, then you don't really have a particular set of expectations or benefits that you desire. So let's talk about that for just a minute. The people in Philip's day lived with oppression. Every day, somebody was oppressing them. You know, it wasn't just the Romans, it was their own neighbors, it was the religious authorities, it was, you know, class systems exist in free societies like ours and in societies where they're just naturally assumed, like say in India where they have a caste system, right? But classism is the real crime in society. We can call it a lot of other things, but the truth is, is when one group of people just naturally assumes they're superior to the rest, there's oppression. And by the way, if I haven't told you this lately, if you wanna know how, the, how to spot the devil at work in your world, just look for oppression. Look for lies, look for decay, look for chaos, okay? So these people lived with oppression. So when you said the Messiah, the promised one, is a deliverer, well, they're interested. They're looking for someone who's going to relieve their suffering. Maybe one of the reasons that people in our society and our times aren't really clear on what they're looking for is because they're not suffering enough. Some of you have been through some stuff lately. Has it made you seek the Lord more? You just think it through. Has it made you need the Lord more? There's a lot of things I want to do for you and with you as your pastor. And I've already invited you to be a participant in some of it. But, but the truth is, is I'll probably never be out of work as long as people suffer. Because sooner or later they call me when they're suffering. When they've called their doctor and the doctor doesn't have any new answers, they call their pastor. When they are up against a psychological and emotional wall. Well, they need Emily's song and a prayer with their pastor to tear that wall down. The truth is they don't need the pastor, but they just assume that because I have the title, after all, I have the name badge. They should start with me, but you all, you disciples of Jesus Christ, you're like Philip. Philip. 
you could go to them and say, it seems like you're looking for something and I've found it. And I want you to come and see. See, we're all in that business. You know, I was talking about what church is and what church ain't earlier. And one of the things that gets me about churches is I have been on a jury and I've watched a trial play out over a period of days. And I've noticed that there's not much difference between this worship space and the courthouse. There's a bar that says you stay over there and I get to be over here. I would call it a communion rail, but it looks suspiciously like the bar that separates the judge. You know, pastors who are better than I am, they wear robes. I don't like wearing the robe at all. But when they wear the robe, they are even more like a judge sitting behind the pulpit, which could just as easily be the bench. And they sit up here, and gosh, if they don't look at least, I'm not saying all the pastors are bad or anything. What I'm saying is, is the message we give visually is like the one that the oppressive Pharisees gave. You might, on a good day, be almost as good as me. You're the disciples. You're the disciples. You're the proof that church isn't what people think it is. As long as you want to be. Because right now in our society, we got a lot of people. I do the, I read the research. I've seen the research. I'm telling you, there's a lot of people in this society who don't trust Christians at all. And the reason they don't is because Christians have been real jerks for a long time. And one of the things I'm hoping and dreaming for us is that we'll stop being that way. I don't mean you. Please don't take this that personally. Take the part where I say be a disciple and tell people they need to come and see. Do that part personally, but don't, don't assume because I said Christians are jerks. I'm just saying that some of our spokespeople haven't done a very good job. And as long as you're letting them do the talking, how's anybody going to know any different? The reason we're meeting Philip is because I'm trying to convince you that you need to be evangelists like Philip. And the only thing you have to say to people is come and see. But you do need to make sure that you know what you're bringing them to see. You do need to let them see what you want them to see. And that you should be clear on. Which brings me back to something I brought up last week. And by the way, I probably strayed so far from my sermon notes that you'll want to get a copy and take it home with you and see what I thought I'd say. It happens every week. I'm just owning it this week. I've actually started color coding the newsletter and the sermon notes with little uh, phrases that invite you to look at that as part of the discipleship journey. In other words, when you see a color-coded thing in the bulletin, or excuse me, in the newsletter or in the sermon notes, it's because I'm pointing out that this is a discipleship pathway moment, okay? So if we're going to be like Philip and we're going to be evangelists, the first thing you need to understand is you don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't even have to be Pastor Dan. I'd recommend against it. And I don't mean that the way it sounds. I just think that it's better. You know, if there's one thing about me that you should probably be, it's, it's comfortable in your own skin. 
Don't be afraid to be yourself. Okay, that's the most important thing I do. It's like I look in the mirror and I go, well, this is as good as it gets. I listen to the recordings or I watch the videos. You know, it's really hard to watch yourself on video, trust me. And I, and I go, well, there it is. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Imagine if you could talk to people you know about Jesus with that same comfort. It is what it is. People say, why do you want me to know you're Jesus? Well, the answer is, I can't help it. I just can't help it. That's the first thing you got to change, right? That's the first thing that needs to be part of your Christian witness. I can't help telling you about it. Shoot, if I knew about something that would enrich your life because it already enriched my life, I'd be telling you about it if it was a certain brand of vitamins, <laughs> if it was a certain uh, store or community option that, made your life better and saved you from a lot of pain and suffering. You know, it's like, it's like there's things we tell people about all the time, whether they ask us to or not. Because we just know it's good and we want them to know it. And yet we're afraid to talk about our relationship with Christ. Maybe because we haven't figured out how good it is to have a relationship with Christ. And so this brings me to my final point, and it's the same point I made last week. I want to help you. And you probably don't know exactly what that looks like, and I understand, but I'm pretty harmless. And I probably won't bite you. So if you would like to make time in your busy schedule to talk about it, I'd like to make time in my busy schedule to talk with you about it because you're never really going to size up your journey without someone to help you, without a frame of reference, without some sort of, of methodical approach. See, because we are Methodists, whether we like it or not, it just happens to come out that way. And so I want to encourage you again, read your bulletin, see what it says there, read your newsletter rather, see what it says there. You know, I, I don't want to get overwhelmed in a way that would make me less effective, but if you'll join me in this process of discipleship counseling, I'd like to help you. I'd like you to take your spiritual journey seriously. And the reason is, is because I've, I know something. You probably would know it too. You might know as well as I do, but... Preachers used to say this sort of thing all the time, and then it got kind of old and too familiar. But it turns out it's still true. We're running out of time. We're running out of time, friends. Christ is coming again. And the end of things is coming. And, and I don't want you to get blindsided because you were ignorant. God asked me to take care of a few of his people in this particular way. And for his sake, I love you and I want you to be blessed. But more than that, I want you to make it all the way through, enduring until the end. And that's why this discipleship thing is so important. 
because your eternal soul is on the line and the souls of your children and your grandchildren and your dearest friends, your brothers and sisters here in the Shiloh family, there's a lot riding on this. So please take discipleship more seriously now than you ever have and let me help. Let us pray. Lord, have mercy. Thank you for speaking truth in love. Now, bless your people, we pray. Amen. Amen.